You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And uh, this is David's pick, as a matter of fact, where we interview, most of the time we interview veterans. And um, we have a special place in our heart for veterans. And uh, we, uh, we appreciate all that they've done for our country and hope that all the good that the veterans have done don't get wiped away by a Congress that doesn't know what they're doing. But anyway, we've got... We've got an experienced guest on our hands, and uh, we're always delighted when somebody wants to come back and volunteers to come back, and we've got Jeff Hill, and if you don't recognize the name, I'll give you a little clue. Jeff was on, uh, I don't know, a month and a half, two months ago, and uh, he's the one that... I don't know if uh, more guts and brains, or I don't. I, I would never say that about Jeff, but uh, he's the one that flew around in a big, big airplane with thirty-three thousand gallons of air fuel in his tank, and uh, he would. He was a tanker pilot and would refuel in midair, and just the thought of that can send chills up your spine if you think about it. That much gasoline, that much airplane fuel, Jiminy Christmas. But anyway, with that being said, Jeff, welcome back to America's Web Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're more than welcome. And as we always have, we've started this trend of doing, and I think uh, Jeff appreciates this uh, because of my friend J. Roy Ritchie. Uh, he succumbed to Agent Orange, and... Uh, we set up a memorial for J. Roy, and it's uh, it's veterans praying for veterans. And if you are a veteran and need prayer, or if you know of a veteran that needs prayer, just uh, send their names in to us, and we'll uh, talk about it on the air a little bit. And uh, right now, we're just going to take a moment of silence, and for our veterans, for our active duty, and for our first responders as well. And we'll be back in one minute. And we thank you for joining with us, and um, we uh, we always keep in mind our veterans. Right now, we're going to do what uh, 
I anybody that's been in knows how a Jody will get you that last 500 feet. So we salute our military, our active duty, and all those that have been through it. Okay, Jeff, you remember those, don't you? I, I, uh, you were cut out. I didn't hear a word you said. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. It, uh, you're hearing me now, though, okay, right? Yes, I am. Yep. Okay. Uh, anyway, the only word I said was that um, I like to play my Jodies, and they got us the last few hundred feet of that forced march or whatever it happened to be, and there's not anyone that's gone through basic or AIT that, doesn't appreciate a good Jody. And uh, we even have some some veterans that come in and they'll sing their own Jody. See, oh, I, I don't have any of those that I would repeat uh, nationwide, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're fun to listen to. And uh, like I said in the opening, uh, you were a tanker pilot in the, in the Air Force, and then... Uh, you know, ever since you did the first interview with us, Jeff, I've I've thought about you many, many times, and I just can't imagine what it would be like. And uh, I think we're going to start off with um, one. I asked you earlier that uh, were there not restricted areas, but areas that you definitely wouldn't fly over, the like New York City or Washington, D.C., or something like that when you're refueling. But um, so the Air Force in refueling work very closely with the FAA. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, to take it one step further, there are designated refueling tracks and orbit areas that uh, – that are deemed safer than others, and um, so we adhere to that. And uh, as far as I know, we haven't had anything um, really big happen at all. When, when did when did we start refueling midair? The, uh, well, actually, the first refuelings were done back in the '30s, but uh, they they finally came up with in the early I think it was the early '50s. With the KB-50, then the KC-97, and then eventually the uh, Boeing 707 or the KC-135 in the late 50s and early 60s. And are those uh, planes of choice today? Uh, yeah, then there's the K- the new refueler, uh, the KC-46. And there were there were several iterations of the of the KC-135. Uh, they beefed up the wings and uh, up the amount of fuel that it could carry, and uh, I'll put bigger engines on them. But uh, the 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 next generation is the KC forty six, which they're uh, introducing into the Air Force right now. Wow! Uh, I just again, is that a, a volunteer duty? No, it's uh, you get assigned uh, in pilot training. There's a uh, as you get towards the end of pilot training, you're evaluated on your <clears throat> performance and physical condition and so on and so forth. So you you give the uh, powers that be your wish list, 
And uh, since I graduated right about the middle of my class, I ended up um, with the uh, KC-135. Hmm. So it was a matter of luck and position in the class and where you stood academically and flying-wise. Wow. And from your class, how many uh, others joined the uh, tanker group? There were about two or three of us. And then um, as an, another kind of interesting point was uh, in my class uh, was most, mostly consisted of uh, American second lieutenants. But uh, we did have uh, six Germans. Uh, we had three Luftwaffe sergeants and uh, three federal German naval ensigns in our uh, pilot training class. Because we had, during World War II, had devastated the German Air Force and practically took down their, all their skilled uh, pilots uh, at the end of the war. So consequently, we ended up uh, retraining uh, training the younger uh, Germans uh, at at places called, well, I went to pilot training at Williams Air Force Base in Phoenix. So, uh, and they were a good group of guys, and uh, we got along famously. If you were to, thinking back uh, with all of your experiences, what what is the most critical point? Is it hookup, or uh, what's the most critical point in refueling? Actually, the... <laughs> The critical point is not so much the refueling part, it's the takeoff, because that's <laughs> when you're the heaviest. Yeah, when you're fully loaded. and uh, you're fully loaded, and, uh, well, our, our version of the uh, KC-135, we could take off at, uh, I believe it was 299,600 pounds. Good. And then the gracious. critical part was how much water was on the runway, which way the which way the wind was blowing, or both, and then the length of the runway had a lot to do with it. So... Uh, a lot of times in our uh, uh, flying in Southeast Asia, the, uh, the the big problem for the KC-135 was the rudder authority to keep your airplane straight in case you end up sliding across the runway because it was a heavy rain. Mm. So I can remember several times uh, not being able to take off because of the crosswinds. And if, the, uh, if you lose an engine, you have the inability to keep it straight. So uh, that was uh, the biggest as far as I was concerned, that was the biggest risk. Uh, obviously, there was a risk of being in during the refueling area uh, uh, times uh, up against the Laotian or and the North Vietnamese border out over the Gulf of Tonkin. You always had the risk of being intercepted by a North Vietnamese aircraft, but it was uh, not going to happen very much at all uh, because they didn't have enough fuel to get to where we were. And you weren't about to loan them any, I bet. Cover. You you weren't about to loan them any, were you? I beg your pardon. You you weren't about to loan the North Vietnamese any fuel. That's correct. That's, <laughs> that's for darn sure. Yeah, they were hit and run, so uh, um, it was uh, interesting. Uh, we did get intercepted by a Chinese big, and I think I mentioned this in the prior program we had. And uh, he just came up from Hainan Island and looked us over, and then. Uh, he left, but um, I believe it was a MiG nineteen, as I recall. I think in the the last time you were on, I think you said that you generally had uh, one hundred five escorts. Well, we didn't have. They were yeah, they, or they ended up being es 
ports uh, in part of the mission, the first half and the last half of the mission. But um, they were uh, they were the the bombers, and they were carrying the heavy loads. And it was an interesting phenomenon in at least in Southeast Asia and other places. You have uh, what they call temperature inversions. So the higher the temperature, the the less your performance is. Mm-hmm. So since the um, was an interesting, it's a it's a good mathematical problem. Is as we refueled the F-105s on their way up to Hanoi or wherever they were going, they got heavier and we got lighter. And uh, as a lot of a lot of times with the temperature inversions, their performance was as they got heavier was really degraded. So we had to do what they call a toboggan, and that meant that we would uh, fly the airplane. Not straight and level, but in a 300-foot-per-minute descent so they could keep up with us. Because we had four engines. They had two plus a lot of bombs. So we had to accommodate particularly the F-105s because they could keep up with us in level flight, but they would burn a lot of fuel using their afterburners, and that makes it harder to control. So we did what they call the toboggan, and we would start out at 18,000 feet at 300 feet a minute, while they, while they refueled and it could keep up with us. Interesting. So you had mentioned, well, I tell you what, we're going to take our first break right quick, and then we'll come back with uh, Jeff Hill and talking about refueling, and I believe you've got a, a couple of stories that you're going to tell us. So we'll be back right after this. Consider joining the U.S. Army with training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering. An Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. And we want to reinforce that a little bit with uh, not only Go Army, but if you're a graduating senior from high school or college and you haven't made made up your mind what you want to do, well, we highly recommend you take a look at the military. One of the branches has exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life. And uh, I can guarantee that whether it's um, water or whatever, flying, whatever your interest is, there is a branch of the military that can fulfill your dreams. And it's gotten to be quite a lucrative position to be in. And there's nothing better on your resume when you've gone through and come out of the military. And um, HR, human resource person, will take a look at it, and they'll know exactly that they've got a leader and they've got somebody that is assigned a mission, and will accomplish it. So look at the military for your career. With that, we also want to mention the fact that we work very closely with the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And uh, Rick White just does an absolutely superb job. And uh, Rick is the uh, Colonel White, retired, is the uh, person that introduced me to Jeff Hill. And we've got Jeff on the line with us this morning talking about what he did in the service in the Air Force as a refueling tanker pilot. And uh, I just, every time I think about that, I think, holy cow, you know. it's uh, So 
Back to you, Jeff. Tell us some of your times. And I think you, you had a story about refueling over the North Pole. Is that correct? During the Cold War, uh, before, you know, before in, in the first part of Gorbachev's uh, reign in Russia, and we would uh, refuel uh, up over the North Pole, circling the North Pole, not exactly, but in that area. And um, we used to call that B-52 the Doomsday Bomber. And there were several movies made of that particular uh, sequence of events. And um, one uh, it would take two tankers, one from Isleson Air Force Base in Alaska and the other one from Goose Bay, Labrador. And we would refuel the B-52 so they could stay up, you know, uh, for at least 24 hours. And they would circle... I don't know, it was exactly the North Pole, but anyway, they'd circle up over that area and uh, waiting for, you know, the uh, the signal to go or not to go. So, um, and those were called the fail-safe codes. So uh, when we'd get a code over the, over the radio, we never knew whether it was for real or for practice. And so far, they've all been for practice. And uh, there took two, uh, two of the four crew members in the tanker to validate the code and to, to uh, determine if uh, this was the real thing or not. On a, on a radar screen, I would assume that you had a pretty large signature, right? Uh, yes, sir. And uh, could, they, uh, could they identify it as a tanker or just... Big plane. You know, I really don't know. I would assume so. Uh, we can do it. Uh, that's for sure. Um, so uh, yes, I, I would say the answer would be yes. I, I assume they had they had similar capabilities. Talk about the Russians. Yeah, yeah. And I assume that it's all uh, increased today as far as. Uh, the technology goes, and how much, uh, I know you had the, um, I believe you call them the boomers, is that right? That's correct. And uh, that had to be, what was keeping them in the plane? Oh, well, there was a, in the back of that KC-135, which is the military version of the Boeing 707, there's a special pod uh, built into the tail part, underside of the tail of the airplane. And then there's a window that sits about a 45 degree angle and that looks, so when the receiver, a B-52 or a 105 or F-4 came up for fuel, the boomer was lying on his stomach and then right in front of him and down a little well was the control for the boom. So the boom could, he could fly the boom because it had the V-tail um, uh, aerodynamics and he could fly the boom up and down and extend and retract the boom and then also helping the receiver were these lights along the bottom of the uh, KC-135 that told him in case there was a you know radio silent procedure it would tell him to move forward move aft uh, move down move up you know that kind of stuff so he could get visual cues or talk to the boomer and the boomer and the uh, pilot of the receiving B-52 or F-4 would work in concert to uh, stabilize the position and then the boomer 
maneuver the boom into the receptacle at the top, let's say at the top of the B-52 or whatever. So um, that, and it was probably the receptacle was, uh, I don't know, three or four inches uh, in diameter, maybe a little long, uh, maybe a little bigger. But anyway, uh, it, was a, it was a dance. Mm. It was a dance is what it was. <laughs> and uh, the more you did it, the better you got. I uh, ended up on the receiving area, receiving, um, uh, besides giving the fuel, in a in a, a fighter called the A-37B, and um, that required a different kind of refueling um, uh, technology. It was called the um, uh, basket refueling. And the basket was a conical basket where you had to stick the probe of the A-37 into the refueling basket. Well, if there was turbulence, it was extremely difficult. So um, you had to practice a lot for that. And because um, the basket was all over the place sometimes in refueling. And if you're new and uh, you're in uh, turbulence, it's, uh, it's a challenge, believe me. I'm just assuming this and um, have have nothing to base it on at all, but I would assume that uh, when they're training to refuel or, or, you know, whatever whatever the pilot's going to be flying, that uh, they do a lot of hookups and and, uh, backing off without actually refueling. Is that, would that be correct? Oh, yes. And uh, <laughs> does the uh, ref- does the uh, plane that's getting refueled? Does the pilot say, "Oh, by the way, this is my first time"? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> never admit anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that that has you know I've just I've thought about it many times since our first uh, discussion, and um, I. It's to me. It's it's uh, two extremely good pilots that um, can hook up and release and uh, not have anything happen. And I guess the uh, I guess the boomer is he a pilot or just no? He's uh, generally a fairly uh, high level enlisted uh, person, maybe a E six, E seven, and. Um, he also an enlisted guy, and he uh, he also is responsible for a lot of other things besides the refueling. Um, to give an example, when we're carrying cargo, he's responsible for the weight and balance of the airplane. Wow! I mean, the pilot is he's responsible for everything, but the boomer also has other duties: uh, getting the airplane loaded, making sure the the, the fuel is loaded in the right spots, or if we're cargo or passengers uh, it was up to him to arrange all that behind the cockpit now, did, so it's did, a huge responsibility by the way oh yeah I would say so just the uh, just the poundage uh, exercise is a is a very important part now did you all fly as a team yes so you had the same boomer all the time basically yes yeah, so when we <coughs> go to Southeast Asia uh, we all um, we all slept in the same hooch in other words, it was a like manufactured housing put up on on concrete blocks to keep the snakes out. But uh, anyway, uh, we all we all stayed together as a crew, 
uh, both officers and the, and the boomer. Because the navigator was an officer also, both pilots were officers, and the boomer, pretty mature guys, pretty mature guys, not just newbies. <laughs> that that I wouldn't want on under any circumstance for these <laughs> Oops, this is my first time. Well, you know, and you had another story you were going to relate to us, I think. Concerning, uh, what was it, do you remember? Uh, something you mentioned this morning. Uh, Agent Orange? It may have been Agent Orange, but uh, I don't know. You had talked about refueling over the North Pole, and then uh, right. you had mentioned, and I have another, you know, you said I have another story. Well, I was uh, concerned about the agent. Remember, we talked about right. how well the VA has treated me. I was set. Set. You want to talk about that? Well, sure, we can. Uh, this was something I can't. I can't recall. This old age gets you sometimes with the uh, remembering. Uh, you had mentioned okay. that you had had another story, and I and uh, but I like the North Pole story and. Uh, yeah, the Agent Orange. Oh, I know what we're talking about is the uh, the Russian attempt to launch a nuclear weapon at Honolulu. Oh, yeah, that's it. I, I think that's what you're referring to. Correct. Okay, uh, on, on March uh, the 7th, 1968, <clears throat> the KGB, which was Yuri Andropov and the chief theoretician for the Communist Party, um, a, guy, a guy named Mikhail Suslov, uh, cooked up this rogue launch of a Russian submarine out of Vladivostok, the K-129. And um, this has been declassified maybe for 10 years, and it was the CIA's best operation ever. And it, what it amounted to is Suslov and Andropov, who later became for a short period of time the premier of Russia, cooked up this uh, launch, uh, this attempted launch at the United States, in other words, at Honolulu, uh, with a 10-kiloton nuke weapon launched from a Type 2 submarine. What does that mean? Well, Type 2 was a Russian version of the submarine that could launch a missile submerged. Well, prior to this time, in in the more halcyon days of the Russian-Chinese relationship, the Russians gave the Chinese two Type 1 submarines, which meant that they had to surface in order to launch a missile. So, Suslov and Andropov cooked up this rogue launch and sent the Spetsnaz ONAS, which are the naval special forces, onto the submarine in Vladivostok and told the captain he had to leave right away on a secret mission. So off they go, heading east towards Hawaii, opened the orders, and the orders were to surface 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor and launch a nuclear weapon at Honolulu. And the, 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 the story was it was the Russians who were occasionally fighting the, the Chinese on the Sino-Soviet border at the time wanted the United States to think it was a Chinese launch because before they left Vladivostok, they surfaced the, they serviced the boat with Chinese oil and Chinese this and Chinese that. So they surfaced the boat uh, 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor and prepared to uh, launch a nuke weapon at Honolulu. Now, this is March 7th, 1968. 
Well, just like a lot of corporations and military, we we tend to compartmentalize our information because you don't need to know this. Well, this that happened because what happened is is the Spetsnaz Onaz, the special forces, locked the captain and his crew in the forward and aft compartments of the submarine, locked the doors, surfaced the boat, and attempted to launch the missile. What they didn't count on is they knew nothing about the fail-safe codes, which we talked about just earlier in this conversation. They knew nothing about the fail-safe codes. Well, what had happened was the United States geeks, in other words, the guys that invented this software and the hardware to, to... broadcast these codes gave the Russians the technology and you think well you scratch your head and you think why in the heck did they give the, 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 the technology to the Russians well you have to understand back then and even now it's mutually assured destruction so it didn't make any difference who launched the nuclear weapons first so what happened is the, they learned Andropov learned of this um, of the uh, 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 ability to launch a, a nuke didn't know about the failsafe codes, sent the Spetsnaz on this mission, locked the captain and his crew in this in their compartment, the forward and aft compartments and pushed the button, surfaced the boat and pushed the button to launch the missile. Well, what happened is it defaulted the explosion was not nuclear, it was conventional, and it exploded on the missile's warhead while it was still in the launch tube of the submarine. What happened is the force was so high that it broke the submarine in two and sank it in 17,000 feet of water. So everybody died. And uh, so the Soviets... Uh, in the ensuing days, were scratching their heads trying to figure out where their submarine was. Well, it was on the bottom of the ocean, 400 miles northwest of Pearl, but they didn't know it. So um, um, there's a book out called Red Star Road that tells this story in detail. It's the most fascinating book I've ever read. In fact, I've read it four times, and each time you pick up little, little tidbits of information. So what happened is, is that uh, there was a University of Hawaii uh, research ship out of uh, out of Maui or somewhere wherever they docked the boat, and they noticed all this stuff floating on the top of the water on, on the surface of the water, 400 miles northwest of Pearl. They called the Navy, and to make a long story short, the Navy confirmed that there was an explosion, a big explosion, by um, the SOSIS tapes, which can locate sounds in the Pacific by triangulating the sound waves. Then there was further, uh, the, um, <clears throat> the missile launch was further corroborated by their, fortunately it was a satellite pass over and they corroborated the explosion. So the CIA kind of figured out there was something amiss. So they approached Howard Hughes to build a boat called the Glomar Explorer. You might remember that name. And the Glomar Explorer at the time was the was the most accept, uh, expensive ship ever built in the world. And that ship was sent 400 miles. It took four years to build the ship. 
and it was sent um, <clears throat> to 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor to pull up to see if they could retrieve the submarine, and they did get part of it. And um, I'm going to finish this because I don't want to give the give away the, the some of the conclusions. But this is why Henry Kissinger was so successful, and when, when he preceded the visit to Mao Zedong in China for Nixon, this, and Kissinger whispered into Mao Zedong's ear about what the Russians had tried to do. Hmm. And that made Nixon's visit, at least that was it was touted as the one of the most successful um, meetings between the communists and the United States. So uh, you got to get this book, and you can't, it's not published anymore. You can get it on your readers called Red Star Rogue. Then there's another one that, uh, that tells about this and the recovery of that particular submarine called The Taking of 129 by Josh Dean. How the CIA used Howard Hughes to steal a Russian sub in the most daring covert operation in history. Wow. wow. On that note, we're going to take our uh, second break, and we'll be back with Jeff right after this. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. And we're back on David's pick on uh, on uh, David's pick on America's Web Radio, and we've got Jeff Hill on, and we've been talking about what he was doing, uh, flying the tankers in uh, during the Vietnam War, and uh, also mentioned the fact of uh, of a. Uh, Situation that I honestly in '68 I would have thought I would have been aware of that. When did they? Uh, when did the U.S. open those? Open that history up? I think it was only ten years ago. Oh, okay. So that that's well, a good the, reason the I point, wouldn't know anything. The point of my uh, story was is that uh, in the tanker business, one of the things that we did is what they call the Pony Express. And we would uh, have three tankers, uh, nose to nose, a mile apart, 
thousand feet separation with uh, four fighters on each tanker. So it was a fifteen airplane gaggle that would uh, meet up uh, outside San Francisco and go to Hawaii and land, and the next day go to Guam and land, and so on and so forth, all the way to Vietnam. So we used to call that the Pony Express. Well, guess where I was on March 7th, 1968? I was on the first leg to Honolulu, and I was in Honolulu that day that the launch failed. Wow. So I always ask people if they're geeks, and because the geeks are the ones that saved our lives. Interesting. So geeks are good. (laughs) (laughs) Or when when it breaks, uh, you might not think they're so good. Right. Well, you never know. (laughs) After you've had a power failure and and you're down for a little while, why didn't they figure that out before? (sighs) Anyway, so... uh, that, that's a very interesting story, and uh, I guess it, it really put a little uh, red on the Russians' face, didn't it? Yeah, you have to understand, that was all KGB done. You know, that wasn't the Russian people. It was, that was strictly the KGB. You, wonder, you, you have to wonder if Putin was involved in some way or the other. Uh, might have been too young. I don't know how old he is. Could have, could have been. Who knows? Yeah, I, I certainly have no idea how old he is. But uh, well, that that's very interesting, and um, I, I'm sure, like all other branches, that uh, and like you said, uh, a lot of times y'all would go out uh, with with more than than one tanker and so forth. And so when you'd come back and um, after the debriefing. The official debriefing. I'm sure there was some debriefing going on in the uh, O Club and uh, or the local bar or wherever. And uh, y'all had to have some. Y'all had to swap some great stories. Um, usually, uh, uh, I found that to be true when I was flying in the fighter squadron after my tour, two tours in Vietnam, <clears throat> but. Uh, yeah, we'd have a debriefing, uh, uh, particularly in the fighters, uh, because everything happens so quickly um, that, uh, you know, you, you end up making mistakes no matter what. Hopefully they're not fatal, <laughs> you know. And uh, so you have this, everybody takes their rank off, so to speak, and uh, you have this really, really um, deep discussion about Colonel, you screwed up. You shouldn't have done that. You know, that kind of stuff. And <laughs> so that went on, yes. I guess I guess Tom Cruise did more for flying than uh, and the and military flying than anybody else, even Jimmy Stewart. And uh, when uh, there was uh, um God, I just went went blank um, when the Air Force had uh, their their ready to go anytime doomsday plan with uh, uh, oh what was it called Jeff I can't remember um, oh uh, well the, the operation was called Operation Chromedome okay and but it was uh, I was trying to think of the name of the all the planes were ready to go, 
and it was under one. Oh, I'll think of it as soon as the interview's over. Okay. <laughs> that, that's I'm a hot. To think that's, of it, the name too. I, the Chrome Dome is the one that you know that I. Uh, well, it started with an S. That I remember. Huh. And Sorry. I can, yeah. Don't, don't remember. Uh, and it started in, uh, I think, in the fifties, actually. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, well, like I said, I'll think about it. Uh, I'll, I'll probably come to me about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'll give you a call. Earlier, uh, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, that it would encourage people to join the military and so on and so forth. Yes, sir. Um, I've got a story I could tell you about an opportunity for these young people if you want to hear about it. Sure. about two minutes. Sure. Uh, about two and a half years ago, I went to my reunion at the Air Force Academy. Uh, it was the same weekend as the Navy game in Colorado Springs. And so there was a briefing given to our class about what was going on with the Academy. And to make a very long story short, I hate to say that, a colonel gets up and turns out he was the professor of international cyber warfare at the academy. Well, at that time, two years ago, the Air Force Academy is the only school in the nation that could offer a degree in international cyber warfare. Well, hmm. since then, the Naval Academy has signed on, and they are doing pretty much, I guess, pretty much the same thing, teaching these kids how to... Um, deal with the uh, high-level computer operations. Well, as it turns out, the the academies, Naval Academy and Air Force Academy, are able to re- recruit very well for these top-level students. We're talking about kids that are really smart and that are kind of geeky, but yet athletic. And uh, they compete very well against the schools you would think of, like Georgia Tech or MIT or Caltech or Rensselaer or you name them. And the reason for that is that these cadets get, you know, secret clearances rather quickly, which allows them to take on another level of of, uh, encryption. Not only that, they're taking these kids not only... uh, uh, to teach them the, the vagaries of all the computer warfare and cyber warfare. They're also making sure that they, they learn language like Arabic or Russian or Chinese. So these kids are getting these incredible degrees in uh, language training. And um, they'll, they're going to be valuable no matter whether they stay in the service or not. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I won't mention what they said these kids command afterwards, but it's mid-six uh, mid six figures after they decide to get out of the Air Force or they stay in. So uh, everybody yeah. benefits from this uh, this scenario. Oh, yeah. The Academy a- is now, <clears throat> I think, building a $50 million building that straddles the cadet area and the, and the public area. And there's um, support from... 50 high-tech corporations from a lecture standpoint and also a money standpoint. There's a uh, contractor waiting for you when when you get out of the military. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, like you said, they pay royally and uh, 
it's you know <laughs> to give you an idea it's uh in my class 80 percent went to pilot training 80 percent of the graduates now I think it's down around 50 or 55 percent because they're taking all these intelligence. A lot of things have changed, obviously. Robotic airplanes, for example. I, I started to say, what, how do you feel about, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the planes, quote unquote, planes in the Middle East were being flown in Florida. That's right. And uh, I, I like that idea because. You just don't want to get captured. No, by anybody. By and, anybody. Uh, exactly. You know, do you think it'll? Do you think this area will grow? And uh, well, I don't think there's any doubt. There's no doubt about it. The uh, artificial intelligence is, you know, going leaps and bounds in terms of what they're able to do, and uh, that's. You know, I, I read somewhere the other day, Aviation Week or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, you know, we're looking at maybe a formation of four fighters. One has a, the leader is a has a pilot. The, the other three are robots. Wow. Now, would they be being flown by that one, or and I, or would it strictly be uh, pre-programmed, or how would that work? Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Probably the Russians would like to know that too. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but that—that's an interesting concept, and um, you know what? So, on your on your plea to the kids to consider the military, some of the these deals now are the best the best deals going. We're talking. Uh, I would assume Naval Academy is pretty much the same, same or more, but it's $450,000 for four years is what it costs the government to send a kid through the Naval Academy or West Point or Air Force. Wow. I had no idea it was that, that kind of price tag. Yeah. Yeah, it's not cheap. No, no, not at all. But, you know, I totally support and I'm not sure that uh, a whole lot of folks care what I think but I totally support the volunteer military I think we get beyond the cream of the crop and uh, I uh, you know I respect them and the you know if if a kid will look at if a kid is of the mind to have a challenge certainly the Air Force or any of the military will give them that challenge, and uh, I think it's uh, you know absolutely great. I've recruited, uh, I think there's been four of them, four young people as a as a uh, as a recruiter for the academy, the Air Force Academy. The first one is now, I believe, a Brigadier General and flying F-16s. Wow. The second one was a female. She decided not to go to pilot training, and she is a commander of a hospital in the Air Force. And the third one, cross-commissioned in the Marine Corps, 
it's my understanding he's a Marine Corps colonel now, flying helicopters. There's a there's the ability <clears throat> for some of these uh, service academy cadets to cross commission into another service, but that that's a pretty long involved process. Um, <clears throat> but uh, there have been a lot of the West Pointers before the Air Force Academy ended up cross commissioning into the Army Air Force before the, academy, the Air Force Academy was built <clears throat> and up in operation. And um, there is an occasional one or two people that cross-commission. Um, the, uh, the last one I help recruit is, is going to go to medical school. Wow. He's guaranteed a slot at medical school, and the Air Force will pay for it. So there's a lot of opportunity for these young people. Oh, it's incredible. incredible, yeah, and yes. uh, it's and it you know some people still think oh they I, I guess they have a misimpression uh, those that live through Vietnam or live through Korea and Vietnam and and so forth that it's uh, it's a it's a total misconception and. The military today, and they had to, they have become competitive with civilian businesses in many, many ways. And uh, um, I think this is, uh, I think it's great. And uh, like I said, I I am a total supporter of the uh, volunteer military. And uh, like I said earlier, I, I, I think we get the... I think our military today has the above the cream of the crop in it, and uh, there's there's so many positions too that a lot of women don't understand that women can take. Everybody thought that, oh, well, if a woman's in the military, she has to be a nurse. Not anymore. Well, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, my roommate at the academy uh, ended up at the Pentagon as a lieutenant colonel and he was and this was in the early 70s and he was given the job to write the protocol for president nixon to force the the air force uh, the academies the naval academy west point air force blah 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 to accept women so he wrote that and of course there was a lot of pushback as you can well imagine but it got through obviously so the first females started at the service academies in 1976 and the first graduating females were 1980 four years later well out of the i don't know about the naval academy or west point but um, the air force academy's first female graduation was 1980 obviously and out of that out of that group there were three female astronauts wow now that's that's, how well they did. That's a little unknown story, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Now some people, some people just don't want to retell it. <laughs> I, I wonder it. if if uh, those three have gone with the civilian portion of. Uh, oh, I'm sure they have. I mean, they uh, if they were commissioned in 1980, be 20, 30. Yeah, they'd be beyond their ability to stay in the Air Force. So they would have had to retire at least 
unless they made general at least 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, I always mention the fact that I'm very proud of my son that's a major in the in the Air Force, as a matter of fact, and uh, he's done quite well, and, uh, and you know, I, I don't think he'll, I think he'll career it, for sure, and uh, I'm very, very proud of him. And, uh, Congratulations. Thank, thank you, and uh, think about him often, and uh, at least he's in, in the U.S. now for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, that makes it a lot more palatable than uh, other areas, but, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it's really a, a great career. If I had it to do all over again, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I probably wouldn't be Army. I'd probably do like my son and go Air Force or something, but uh, I would do absolutely. And you know the other thing about veterans, and I think I've mentioned this before, is that, uh, you know, I have not asked a veteran that hadn't given me the same answer. If the country called, would you go back in? And everyone says they'd be pushing their walkers any way to get back in, you know, that they would do it in a, in a second. You know, funny you should mention that because my answer would be the same in a heartbeat. Um, <clears throat> several years ago, we were, a bunch of us were sitting around, you know, drinking a beer and this very subject came up and I said what we should do is write a letter to the president and volunteer and we could uh, give them our you know our past skill sets and which uh, which and which of those skill sets would work now and which ones wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> but um, it just depends on your health status but uh, we were laughing about that it was it was half serious and it, and that conversation does go around Oh, I'm sure. And uh, I don't, like I said, I've never asked a veteran that wouldn't. And uh, it really didn't matter what age. Uh, And I think, isn't the the saying true, uh, once a general, always a general? Well, I don't know. I I wasn't a general. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that's probably true. I, you know, I don't know. I was amazed. I know a couple generals, but they're very modest yeah i uh i had a friend at uh my club that uh, was a general and uh air force general as a matter of fact and uh he told me once that that and this was a number of years ago but that uh as a general he still got briefings and uh even though he had been retired for for a number of years but but a general can always be called back up as I understand it. I think that's, that's correct, yes. I think so. Uh, I was so far away from being a general that I was someplace below the bottom step, you know. But anyway, uh, you know, it is it is a good, it, it's a great life, and you meet great people in the military, and we certainly push for it. And I want to remind everybody, too, that um, John's Creek... Georgia has the uh, what we call the healing wall, which is a replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington D.C. This is the wall that traveled all over the country, uh, and 
has healed a lot of people, have been able to bring closure to a lot of folks. And it's now permanently located in Johns Creek, Georgia, and it's open, I think, basically around the clock. And you can go to it, and and very shortly they'll they'll have a kiosk that will have a computer, and you can locate names easily. And uh, so we invite you to go to that. Uh, also in Georgia, like I mentioned earlier, is the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And uh, Rick White just, I can't say enough about Rick and the job he does with the Hall of Fame. And it's certainly a, put it on your bucket list to do and see if you live in Georgia or live in Atlanta and you haven't been there, or if you're traveling to Georgia, assuming traveling opens up again in the near future. Um, But put it on your list to go to it because it is great and uh, a rewarding time to look at all of our the real heroes, and you know, not a one of them is in in a basketball uniform. I don't think. Um, but anyway, and we we I will say that we do have a, a hero on our or in our family at America's Web Radio, and that's Rocky Blyer. Uh, he served in Vietnam and was injured and told that. He would never walk again, much play, much less play football again, and came back, and with his willpower, he won four Super Bowl rings after that. And uh, Rocky is an outstanding human being. So, Jeff, it looks like we're about to run out of time. Well, it's been fun. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, I hope that uh, you'll come back and... Uh, uh, we'll talk more tankers, or we'll talk whatever you want to talk. But uh, right. you're you're a great interview, and uh, we appreciate your service. And for the country, I'd like to thank you for the service that uh, you gave to our country, and and keeping those. Pl- you could sort of say you're you're a uh, filling station, keeping those planes flying. You didn't work on them, but you just you gave them something to eat. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if you uh, think about any of uh, some more of your experiences that would uh, blow our mind, well, let us know. And thank you again for being on, and we look forward to you coming back and being with us again. Well, thank you, sir. Take care. Thank you. You too. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.